This week on the Road to Cinema podcast, director and writer Jody Lambert on his new film Brave New Jersey, a comedy starring Tony Hale, which explores a small New Jersey town which was rocked by the 1938 Orson Welles broadcast of The War of the Worlds. The film opens in limited release and on VOD on August 4th. Subscribe to the Road to Cinema podcast on iTunes for new episodes every week. And don't forget to write us a nice review on the iTunes podcast page under the Road to Cinema podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Jog Road, Instagram at Jog Road Productions. Subscribe to our Jog Road Productions YouTube channel to watch some of our Road to Cinema video interviews with Don Cheadle, Greta Gerwig, and Ewan McGregor. And now we join director and writer Jody Lambert as we discuss his new film, Brave New Jersey, which opens on VOD and limited release on August 4th. So I wanted to start off by talking a little bit about the documentary you did. That was your first film? And it's yes. actually being adapted into a movie with Steve Carell, I saw. Uh, well, that actually is no longer happening. Okay. Um, we, yeah, they, they optioned the documentary and, and, uh, and wrote a script, and it just, you know, kind of met with typical development hell uh, you know, delays and stuff. Right. So it's not, it's not going to happen with them. So what was the story behind making that documentary? Yeah. So it's kind of a crazy, it's kind of a crazy story. So my, um, my dad was a very successful and prolific songwriter in the seventies and eighties. Um, he had a, a bunch of hits in a, in a bunch of different genres, like, uh, ain't no woman like the one I've got rhinestone cowboy, um, Baby Come Back, Night Shift, Don't Pull Your Love, like a lot of kind of, you know, uh, pop, pop hits. And, um, but he, he made this one album in, uh, 1972. That was the only time that he ever made a record. And he, cause he would do the demos and stuff for his songs. And finally one of the labels said, Hey, you know, Dennis, you're a really great singer. Why don't you just make a record on your own? And if it's a hit, then we'll send you out on the road. And if it's not a hit, it doesn't matter because you're writing songs for all these other people. So he made this album and it didn't really do any business. And, um, and that was kind of it. And then, and then 30 years later, he finds out that the album's actually really successful in the Philippines. And he's like a legend. And one of his songs um, called Of All the Things, which is the name of the doc, is like their national anthem of Valentine's Day. And so he kind of went over to the Philippines, like not knowing what was in store and, uh, and, he, and very you know far away from his musical past. He had not been making music for many years. And uh, he went over to the Philippines to tour at age 60 and kind of like got his mojo back a little bit. And uh, subsequently he's been playing and he's been writing. He did co-wrote the score for this movie, Brave New Jersey. And uh, he got nominated for the Songwriters Hall of Fame with his old songwriting partner. So since that trip and that documentary, a little bit of, you know, Fairy he's developed dust. a brand new career. A little bit, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, so he's, when did you realize that that would be a documentary? When he was planning this trip over there and you thought... Yeah, well, uh, Taylor Williams, who produced, uh, who's one of the producers of Brave New Jersey and produced of all the things, he's, he's one of my oldest friends. And when we were kind of watching my dad make this decision to go, you know, we both said, maybe this is a movie, you know, it feels like if 
your dad goes over there and, and, you know, has kind of a life changing experience, which you never know, but it feels like it has all the makings of that, which incidentally is why I think, you know, we had a couple of, uh, Hollywood people come after the story because it felt like a regular movie. You know, I hate to hate to knock documentaries like they're not regular, but I think it felt like a narrative in a weird way because it was such a clear beginning, middle and end of this guy and his past. And he's got one shot to make, you know, for like a second chance. And, uh, yeah, so, so it was really fun and it was great. I'd been trying to make a film and, um, I had written a couple things and, and so that came together. We said like, yeah, let's go make this movie. And, it was a lot of fun. It was, it was a great, great so at, experience. So at that point, you were just writing screenplays. You didn't really have it in your mind to even be making a documentary, but the story was just there. Exactly. You know, it just felt like a movie, and it just was sort of like, well, this one is a documentary because it's really happening. It's my dad will have all the access you could possibly want, you know, um, and a and a, a an insider's look at his life which only i would know it would not like some other documentarian would come along and say hey i should make yeah. that movie um so yeah we just pulled the trigger i was trying to get uh some other stuff off the ground and it just felt like the time to to do it so from then on did your screenwriting career really begin after that documentary was that it was kind of a, a parallel track yeah because um i i co-wrote a movie that ended up being called People Like Us, but it was called Welcome to People at the time with Alex Kurtzman and Bob Orsi. And uh, it was sort of a small family drama that ended up getting made around the same time that this stuff was happening with the documentary. Um, so suddenly I went from doing this doc to being like a screenwriter um, at, on a studio movie because it ended up being made by DreamWorks. And, and that was sort of like, you know, the first thing that, that I had worked on that got made and it was, it was really exciting. So between that and the doc, I just went from, you know, trying to get a yeah. couple things going to having like two things almost at the same time that were happening. So was people like us a personal story for you similar to the documentary? It was, yeah. I mean, it was, it combined kind of, uh, elements from Alex's Alex Kurtzman directed it. Um, it combined elements from, from his life and we used some details from my life it was sort of about this uh guy who finds out that his father had another family that he didn't know about and we made the father like a music industry guy like my dad and in fact if anybody goes and and watches the movie there's pictures in the main characters it has like this room with all of his old recordings and stuff and we used old pictures of my dad that they the production design uh, and props team sort of superimpose the actors with my dad in these old pictures because we had all these great old photos from my dad in the studio in the 70s. Um, so yeah, it was sort of a, a combination of Alex's story and, and my dad's life a little bit. But yeah, it was, it was sort of a personal uh, family story. So through this course, have you sort of developed kind of figuring out what types of films you want to make, what types of scripts you want to make? Has that come along for you? Or do you feel like, you know, if a story compels you, you'll just kind of go down that road? I mean, I think it's always a little of both, but I, I definitely gravitate towards, you know, these kind of funny, uh, human stories, um, character driven comedies or, or dramedies. I don't know what 
you know, what the people want to call them these days. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you know, things that just feel like they're a little more grounded in reality. And um, I like things that kind of overlap with pop culture. I think Brave New Jersey and, and of all the things certainly both have this sort of pop culture influence on them. Um, and those stories kind of get me excited. I grew up in L.A. and, you know, my dad being in the music industry, I feel like I kind of grew up in the business a little bit. And so always kind of found ways to like be influenced by that world a little bit, but not necessarily stories that are set in Hollywood, you know? Yeah. Um, but like with Brave New Jersey, it's Orson Welles, it's War of the Worlds, you know, something that is very, you know, it comes from that cinematic landscape in a way. Yeah, for sure. It has, yeah. it has, it overlaps with Hollywood in a, in a way that's interesting. Um, even though our movie is not about Wells, it's about a town that hears the broadcast and thinks it's real. But yeah, it sort of has that, that feeling of, uh, the influence of show business on it, I suppose. So how did you get wrapped up in the War of the Worlds story and all the craziness around it? Uh, yeah, well, uh, my co-writer, Mike Dowling, um, I had been working on a couple things and he came to me and said, hey, you know, no one's ever made a movie about the War of the Worlds broadcast. Um, there'd been a couple of TV movies over the years that touched on it, but they, they like always cut to Orson Welles in the studio. And I think we were both more interested in the people that heard it and, and the sort of panic that everybody kind of talks about that happened, whether, you know, now there's some dispute about how real that element of the story is, but the kind of legend of the night of the war of the world's broadcast, when people thought Martians were invading, we just thought was a really interesting and kind of fun world for a movie that hadn't been made. So we started working on the script and kind of created this ensemble of characters from this one town and, you know, kind of jumped in. That's how we got started. So why did you end up picking uh, this small town in New Jersey? Was that out of research you had done or were you sort of... Well, the broadcast claimed that Martians landed in Grover's Mill, New Jersey. So we wanted it to be like a town that was close enough to where the Martians landed that they felt like any minute the Martians could arrive. Um, and it just felt kind of fun to set it near where, you know, the, the point A of the, the broadcast would have been, you know, point A. I don't know if that's a real expression, <laughs> but it is now point A, uh, no, just like somewhere close by, you know? Yeah. yeah. So from there developing all of these characters and in particular, Tony Hale, who's really the lead of the film. It's interesting to see Tony Hale in this type of role because we're so used to seeing him as Buster on Arrested Development or on or on Veep as uh, Julia Louise Dreyfus's personal assistant. Yeah. So what made you think that Tony Hale would be perfect for this? Well, it's really interesting. I mean, we have this really wonderful casting director named Denise Chamian, and um, she does a lot of big Hollywood movies. She does. She you know did like Saving Private Ryan and all of Tony Scott's movies and Michael Bay's movies, and she was the casting director for people like us. And I got to know her a little bit and. Um, I really liked her and I sent her the script just kind of, you know, wanting to get her opinion. And she wrote me back and was like, I love this. You know, what do you want to do? And I said, well, let's go try to get some actors. We can get this movie made. And the character that Tony plays, which his name is Clark, and he's kind of the sort of overlooked uh, mayor of the town that everybody sort of takes advantage of. But you're really rooting for him and kind of falling in love with him. He's almost the romantic lead of the movie. 
um, it was Denise's idea. You know, she said, let's find somebody that, you know, not, doesn't necessarily get this kind of part very often and who maybe, uh, you know, is, is like looking for a lead role. And, and it's great cause Tony just fit the bill so perfectly. It was like we had written the role for him. And in fact, Mike and I were talking the other day that right before we sent the script to Tony, we were like, oh, let's do one more pass. Let's just try to make it a little funnier, you know, have the character be a little funnier. And we kind of, you know, we weren't like 100% felt like, we didn't 100% feel like we nailed it. And all of the moments in the movie that we felt like, oh, I wish that could have been funnier on the page, Tony just made them so funny. And that's like, you know, when you know you've got the right guy, when yeah. he's he's helping the material, like, elevate, you know. And I think all the actors did that. And, and, and there's uh, also, like, a really surprising depth to Tony's performance because, it you know, when you when you start watching the movie, you think, okay, so when is he going to do the shtick right. know, that we've seen him do all along? Yeah. But then suddenly you're sucked in and he's really the emotional core of the movie. He's really a leading man. Yeah, he is. He is. He's, it, it kind of reminds me a little bit of like Tom Hanks, you know, back in his like big, you know, his early movies where he was sort of a comedian, but he brought this real, you know, depth and, and, and sort of uh, humanity to what could have been just strictly a comedic type of performances. And um yeah, it was wonderful to to be able to do that and collaborate with Tony. He made a movie um, that's really good called Happy Thank You More, Please. It was a Sundance movie that Josh Radner directed. And he played a kind of a similar type of guy where he was sort of pining after this woman um, played by Malin Ackerman. And there's just a moment at the end of the movie where, and I was watching the movie before I met with him, where he sort of professes his love to her. And it was so like deep and just layered and... You know, I was like, oh, wow, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of falling in the same, you know, category as everyone else who just sees him as Buster or Gary from Veep when obviously, like, he's so talented. And uh, so it was really great to be able to work with him and, and on a role that allowed him to do more than just his, uh, you know, kind of physical comedy stuff that he's known for. What was the process of developing all these other characters around him? Because there's really a, a huge ensemble cast in the movie, this, this whole town. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, from a casting standpoint, it was like once once we knew that Tony was playing the lead, then finding all those other people was was sort of, I don't want to say easy, but you just knew, you know, you had like, oh, we should it should be this type of actor. You know, they're all they're all kind of the same types. You know, they're like funny, deep, comedic actors, but who also can can do like role dramatic moments and and kind of switch up between the two and so finding those kinds of actors that felt like they would be in the same world as Tony was really fun and I think within a few cases people who heard that Tony was doing it wanted to do the movie because they knew like oh he's going to be the mayor of the in this movie I kind of feel like I get what this movie's going to be like and so that was cool too because then you had people kind of wanting to do the film you know which is nice. So how much of what we see in the film is dramatic license versus sort of core research of how people were really reacting to War of the Worlds? And what did he find in terms of the reality of, of what was happening back then? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's definitely like a fictionalized look at uh, how people reacted. We did do um, some research into um, 
the broadcast and and what happened in the aftermath of the broadcast. There were a couple books written, like a little kind of sociological study. Um, and, you know, they were sort of good roadmaps for our characters. You know, it would just say, like, some people, you know, took a, a rifle and, you know, got and barricaded themselves in their barn or somebody, you know, left their family and drove off. And we thought, oh, my God, you know, that's a pretty crazy thing. Like, um, But as far as, you know, we kind of invented these characters and then... Uh, yeah, the, their, their decisions and behavior were, were pretty much inventions of our, of our script and yeah. Yeah. Now directing a a large scale feature film like this, how does that differ from working on a documentary or doing other short form material like you've done in the past? I, you know, I wish I could say it was, it was so much different and I guess in some ways it is, but I feel like the challenge is kind of always the same, which is you're just trying to make really good decisions one after another, um, and not, and not ignore some of the problems that you might, you know, you might have. In other words, in other words, not digging in on something that's not working. And if something wasn't working, we would say, okay, let's look at this from another another angle or, you know, is there another way into this scene or, you know, and I feel like that is, that's the same process that I had on the documentary or some of the shorts I've done. You're just constantly saying what, you know, what's the best decision for the story we're trying to tell. And you just take it one shot at a time, one scene at a time, you know, one act at a time and hope that by the end of it, all those good decisions lined up and the whole thing is good. Do you like to plan out a lot before a day? Do you make shot lists? Do you, do you ever have time to rehearse? I know with independent films, usually rehearsal isn't even an option sometimes. Yeah, we actually did get to rehearse. It was nice because we, we had a, quite a bit of time after we cast uh, everybody before I had to leave to go to Tennessee. So we were able to rehearse a little bit. Um, with Tony and another actor sitting in for Heather Burns, who plays Lorraine. So we ran through like all their scenes. And then Anna Camp and Matt Oberg, who play a couple in the movie, we rehearsed a few times. And I rehearsed with Dan Bacadal a couple times. And it was really helpful just in terms of, you know, when you get to the set of an indie film, I mean, it's just a time crunch and you just are, you know, hoping you're going to be able to have as many takes and as many setups and so you can have as many options. So just having that that starting point where we didn't have to have any conversations on the set of like, what is this scene about and what are we trying to do here? It was like we got there, everybody knew what the goal was for the day and everybody just jumped in and I think that rehearsal process was really helpful for that. When it came to editing, did you feel like the film shifted at all from when you originally put everything down on the page? Yes and no. I mean, you know, the the kind of the tone comes to life in a way that is sometimes totally surprising in good ways and other ways you're like, "Oh man, you know, I wish we had done that differently," but it it just kind of reveals itself as you go. And we had a nice long editing process. So that was helpful that we got to really, uh, you know, see what our options were. And then we tested the movie, you know, once we had like a full, um, a full cut of the film, we did like four test screenings, like once a week for a month to just 
try different jokes, see what works, reorder the scenes, you know, just kind of find the movie in front of an audience a little bit. And that was really helpful to just... Were you there in the theater as an audience yeah. was watching? Yeah, yeah, I was sitting in the back and, you know, you'd kind of like anticipate, oh, here comes a big laugh that we loved in the editing room. And then it would be like a, you know, silence or crickets in the theater. And you'd be like, okay, that was funny to us, but it's not funny to anyone else. And so that would go, you know, in the next screening, we'd, that moment would be gone and you'd see if the scene would play better. And we just kept doing that and kept doing it because we felt like, you know, with a comedy, especially the most important thing is like, is the pace feel right? Are the moments landing? Are we getting the laughs that we thought we were going to get? And, and that was, uh, you know, really helpful process to, to be able to do that. And also to be able to do that in a real screening room, which, you know, a lot of movies, you know, you're showing people the film in your editing bay on a small screen and it just doesn't have the same, you know, effect. So yeah. to be able to show it like on a big screen was, was also really helpful. Yeah. I've heard filmmakers go both ways. Some are against the test screening and some love it because you get that type of reaction, especially for a comedy. So yeah. You know when things are really landing. Yeah. It was super helpful. I'm, I'm glad we did it. We did it once for the documentary too. And it was, it was also really helpful. And then, you know, you have people fill out cards and ask specific questions and things, you know, which, which some of which are really helpful and others, you know, people, people have different tastes. So somebody might say, I hated this character. I love this character. And you know, there's not much you can do about that, but just in terms of hearing it and kind of feeling it and, and, and listening to the audience react, see where the movie feels like it's dragging a little bit. That was all really helpful. Now, when you're going through this whole process, how do you know when you're really done and how do you know when to sort of stop listening to other people's opinions in a way? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, you know, sometimes you're done because your producers (laughs) say you're done and there's no more time to to do anything. And uh, and other times, you know, you just have to uh, it's like about time management. You know, there's always something to do. So you have to prioritize. Like I remember when we were doing the score, there was one one piece of music that was didn't wasn't really crucial to to keep tweaking, you know, it was like, it was good enough for this one scene. So you'd say, okay, let's, let's just leave that because I'd rather spend that extra hour on this other piece of music. That's super important. Um, so sometimes you'd be done because you'd know that if you kept going, you'd just be like digging yourself into valuable minutes that you could use elsewhere. And I think that was, you know, between me and the editor and the producers and you know, our sort of inner circle of people to be able to say like, let's move on from that because I think it's good enough or it's close enough for now to, but let's focus our priorities on something else. Cause you know, you just, you don't have an infinite amount of time. So you want to really use that time as, as, as well as you can. Yeah. I always find it interesting with a music score because, you know, I don't know, maybe you probably had experience growing up with a lot of music, but how do you know, where to spot music and how music can work and how it can really elevate a scene or even how to communicate with a composer to really bring out the best. Yeah, well, we had a really unique um, situation with the music because it was it was done by uh, my dad and these two guys, uh, Kelly Winrich and Matthew Logan Vasquez from a band called Delta Spirit. I don't know if you know the band, but basically when we were kind of prepping the movie, we were listening to this band and putting some of their music into like our temp tracks and, um, or actually 
this was even before we shot the movie, just in the ways we were conceiving certain sequences. And, and we just thought, you know, let's just reach out to them and see if they want to work on the score with my dad. And they said, yes. And they had never done a movie score. My dad had done a couple scores, but it had been a long time. And, um, and they just had a really, really great feel for the movie and the kind of music we wanted. Um, you know, the movie takes place in 1938, but we didn't want the score to be like jazzy Woody Allen score. Um, so they just really jumped in and, and they were really good at instinctually saying like, you know, oh, this is a cool piece, but what if this cue comes in here instead of here or on this line of dialogue instead of here or if it or if a cue extends after the scene ends to here and they just all three of them had such a wonderful kind of cinematic um, musical vocabulary that uh, really ended up being great for the movie I think the music's really original and and cool and um, you know it was it was because of their kind of instincts so yeah. it was it, was it really subverts your expectations of what you think a period piece would sound like you know with a music score to have it be electronic i think that's a really interesting choice to do that yeah yeah that was what we wanted to do all along and and you know it has kind of a an acoustic folky sort of vibe but yeah it's really a lot more um yeah electronic and kind of uh uh, it just doesn't feel like a typical music store. It's almost like each cue is really a song more so than like a, a piece of, of, of cinema score, you know? Um, and that was, yeah, how we designed it and it worked out, you know, and we were all kind of crossing our fingers. Like, I hope this works out. Uh, cause it obviously could have gone, you know, kind of awry when you have people that haven't done it before, but they're all such talented musicians. They really, they really got it and, and it, it ended up being really cool. Now after now that you're ready to release the film and it's all done and you know it's out there in the world, are you ready to jump into the next one to direct again or do you feel like you want to stay and, and write? And uh, no, I mean directing is really fun and obviously it's a real challenging, time-consuming job. But uh, yeah, my, I, I would love to make another movie and work on a couple things and trying to do some TV stuff. I sold a pilot um, with that I wrote with Matt Oberg, who plays Charlie in the movie, um, a couple years ago. And that was a really fun, kind of interesting experience because it's just so quick in TV. You know, you, you sell something, you write it, and then you know pretty quickly whether it's going to happen um, as opposed to movies, which can take years and years and come close to happening. And then not. It was nice to just kind of get an answer um, very quickly, they didn't end up making it the pilot, but we, you know, but at least we the sold process it of and, selling it and moving yeah. along that with independent films, it's, it can just kind of pass from one person to another over years. Yeah. So yeah. So yeah, exactly. So TV is, is something I'm interested in and, and, um, seeing if I can get a couple things going there and, but yeah, it's a, it's, it's fun. I mean, I sort of think of writing and directing in a way as kind of the same thing. I mean, you're, you're sort of, creating a story that you want to see through until till the end um so i certainly feel like the things that i would write in film would would be to direct hopefully um but you know you never know if some master filmmaker comes <laughs> along and says they want to direct a script then you'd make that call when that happens you feel like you would ever make another documentary 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, what's what's nice about filmmaking in general is, you know, if a story really strikes you, then you go, okay, this one's a documentary or this one's a narrative or this feels more like you need Hollywood resources. You know, sometimes you come up with an idea and you're like, well, this is not an indie. This is a studio movie or, you know, I think it's really about like the, the story that grabs you and if a documentary subject came along and, you know, I said, wow, that's so cool. And, you know, we got to make that movie, even though it's a doc, I would certainly do it again. It's really fun. My, my producer said something really interesting when we were making of all the things, which was that, you know, a documentary is like, you have like, or a, a narrative movie, you start with this small this small thing, a script, and it becomes this enormous thing, which is your movie. And a documentary starts with this enormous thing, which is life happening for real. And you whittle it down to the small thing, which is a movie. I thought that was really interesting. And, and also, you know, kind of the appeal of, of doing both. They're, they're similar in so many ways, but then in, in other ways, they're, they're really different and they, you know, they uh, challenge you as a filmmaker in different ways. I was trying to find your documentary online, but I was having difficulty. Uh, yeah. It wasn't it, on iTunes or anywhere? Yeah, it hasn't been released because we, we got into a, a problem with all the music licensing because there's so much music through my dad's career. So weirdly, like every so often, the, there's like a new wave of interest in it. So we're hoping that this year we're going to be able to get it out and... Um, because it's a it's a really entertaining movie. I'll send you the link, but oh, you can't awesome. can't Thank send you. it to anybody. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's yeah, it's a really entertaining film. Um, a little bit like Searching for Sugar Man now, which, which came out a couple years after our movie. But it's a really uh, it's like a funny kind of human doc. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah, and any chance it might become a narrative film, or is that? Uh... Yeah, well, you know, after the stuff with uh, with Warner Brothers kind of ended, so I started working on the script myself um, because they didn't hire me to write it initially. Um, and so, yeah, I've been kind of tinkering away. It's tricky because it's like it, um, it's uh, it's like writing your autobiography for a second time. You Are know, you a character within the screenplay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it because the movie has a, a a nice sort of father son element to it because you know in the doc that I'm directing it and that I'm, I'm like, you know, the director is his son. Um, so there's a built in kind of father son journey to the whole story, which is, you know, kind of charming. So yeah, Jody is a character. <laughs> it's weird to say my own name, but yeah. Uh, so when does brave New Jersey come out? Uh, yeah, bro. The movie it? comes out, um, August 4th. It'll be in, I think like 12 cities and VOD and, uh, yeah, so it's it's exciting. We're we're looking forward to finally unleashing it. Cool. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today. Yeah, my Appreciate pleasure. It. Thank you. It was great. Thanks for listening to the Road to Cinema podcast. You can check out Brave New Jersey now available on VOD through iTunes, Amazon, and other on-demand platforms, as well as in limited theatrical release. We'll see you next time.